Greenland is an autonomously operating territory of Denmark that is nearly 20 times the size of Denmark proper, though the whole of the Kingdom of Denmark includes Greenland and the Faroe Islands alongside the original European country. So although these are three different entities, they're also part of the same larger Kingdom of Denmark entity. And both Greenland and the Faroe Islands have representatives within the Danish parliament to demonstrate that. Greenland is geographically part of North America. It's on the same continental plate as the United States, Mexico, and Canada, and is located just east of the northernmost portion of Canada, the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. But Greenland is culturally a mix of Scandinavian European culture and Inuit culture, due to its history and present with both cultural influences. Way back in the day, for at least 4,500 years, but potentially even longer than that, various groups of Arctic-dwelling people have inhabited Greenland, probably having crossed over from Canada. In the 10th century, though, Norsemen, that is, Vikings, established settlements in the southern portion of Greenland, and they actually didn't have to go far, having already set up shop midway between Europe and Greenland on the island of Iceland previously. It was this group of Norsemen who, led by Leif Erikson, became the first known European people to reach North America, and they did so about 500 years before Columbus made it to the Caribbean. The Inuit people arrived a few hundred years later, in the 13th century, from Canada, much like their cultural precursors who did the same thousands of years earlier. The Inuit established their own settlements, separate from the Norsemen, but the Kingdom of Norway laid claim to the entire island in 1262, and the Norse colonies thereabouts developed and grew until the very late 15th century, when the Black Death Plague sent Norway spiraling into decline, along with the rest of Europe, and the colonies were thus starved of resources and immigration, and were left unoccupied. In 1499, the Portuguese showed up, took a look around, and claimed Greenland, but their interest did not last. When the Danes arrived again in the early 1700s alongside Norway as part of a joint union, they and the local Inuit and related tribes were the only game in town. The union between Norway and Denmark dissolved in 1814, making Greenland entirely Danish at that point, though the island was not fully brought into the Kingdom of Denmark until 1953, their place in the kingdom formalized in Denmark's newly updated constitution. In 1979, Greenland was granted home rule by the Danish government, which essentially meant they were decentralized to a degree from that central Danish government entity, and in 2008, the Self-Government Act passed by vote in Greenland shifted even more power from the Danish government to the local Greenlandic government. So today, in 2019, all the Danish government really handles for Greenland is foreign policy, national defense, and monetary policy, including an annual subsidy of several billion dollars that they provide to Greenland, though the quantity of that subsidy will iteratively shrink over time. The capital of Greenland is Newark, N-U-U-K, which has a population of 17,984 people as of January 2019. Newark contains almost a third of the whole population of Greenland, which is home to 55,877 people, 
also as of January 2019. Cars drive on the right, they use the Danish krona as their currency, and Greenland was supposedly named Greenland because the Viking who settled it, Eric the Red, was exiled from Iceland for manslaughter and sailed west to the far larger island to establish a new settlement. He wanted the settlement to grow and thought that more people would show up, would join his settlement, if he gave it a nice-sounding name. So he called it Greenland, despite the fact that the average temperature today is somewhere between 5.1 to 9.9 degrees Celsius, which is about 23 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and despite the fact that 81% of the country is covered by an ice sheet. All Greenlandic settlements are on the coast, because the center of the island is just ice, as far as the eye can see. And up in the northern part of the island is the world's largest national park, the Northeast Greenland National Park, which was established in 1974 and which is 972,000 square kilometers, or about 375,000 square miles, in size, which makes this national park alone bigger than all but 29 of the 195 countries or so that exist in the world today. So it's a pretty big park. Interestingly, Greenland is the world's largest island, while Australia, which many people think of as an island, is actually the world's smallest continent. The distinction here is not one of size, but geology. A continent is the largest landmass on a continental plate, which are the chunks of land that make up the outer layers of the Earth. So while Australia is the largest landmass on the Australian continental plate, Greenland is part of the North American plate which also contains the far larger North American landmass, where the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are located. What I'd like to talk about today is Greenland, the important role it has played in international issues over the years, and a recent international incident that was maybe just a flub, but which maybe is representative of something bigger and more intentional. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the BBC, and it's entitled Trump Cancels Denmark Visit Amid Spat Over Sale of Greenland. This somewhat bizarre story starts with a piece in the Wall Street Journal, which mid-August 2019 reported that Trump had been asking his aides about the possibility of buying Greenland. Ostensibly, so that its natural resources, which according to a 2014 Brookings Institute report, includes large quantities of untapped or barely tapped iron ore, coal, lead, zinc, diamonds, gold, rare earth elements, uranium, and oil reserves, could be mined and utilized by the United States. By all indications, Trump's people were not enthused or optimistic about the possibility, but that didn't stop them from going forward with the president's desire to post the question to Denmark's government, which politely replied that Greenland is not for sale, while internally, apparently, at the same time, exchanging shocked glances and commentary about how rude the request was in the first place. This led to a pseudo-scandal in which Trump tweeted mean-spirited things about the prime minister of Denmark, calling her, among other things, nasty, he then canceled a scheduled trip to Denmark, apparently in retaliation for her lack of enthusiasm for selling Greenland. The official explanation was that if she was not open to discussing the possibility, they did not have anything to talk about. This kerfuffle, 
over Greenland was not the most bizarre and extraordinary news item revolving around the U.S. president in the week in which it took place. So after a quick frantic publishing of Greenland-related think pieces by pretty much every publication, quite possibly because Greenland-related news is scarce internationally most of the time, and they wanted to get their money's worth out of this opportunity, after that flurry, the story was largely backbenched to refocus on more vital issues. I would argue, though, that there's actually quite a bit more to this story than initially meets the eye. And I mean that in the sense that wanting to have a territory like Greenland at this very moment is not a crazy notion. And in the sense that politically, it's potentially a clever possibility to float if you're hoping to rally a certain type of ideological base. First, though, let's talk a bit about the United States history with and in Greenland. Right before the United States entered World War II, before the U.S. joined in on the side of the Allies, the Danish invited the U.S. to pop up to Greenland to serve as a sort of house-sitter for their largely unoccupied, at least by Danish people, island. Concerned, it would seem, that the Norwegian government and military in exile that was based in Canada, a place called Little Norway at the time, which was established after the Nazis occupied Norway proper, the Danish were a little bit worried that the Norwegians, their true home occupied by the Germans, would decide to claim this vast, seemingly vacant island for themselves. But also, that the Germans would eventually make the time to invade and take the island, on their way to try to attack the rest of North America. The Danish ambassador to the United States, Henrik Kaufmann, made this request, and then-President Franklin Roosevelt signed off on it in June of 1941. But at the time, Denmark was a protectorate under the Germans, meaning they were guaranteed protection, but not formally occupied by the Germans, though they would be occupied by them later in the war. When this request to the U.S. was made, though, their actions ostensibly should have lined up with the ambitions of the Germans. And so Kaufman, who invited the United States into Greenland and deigned to make the request in the name of the King of Denmark, was charged with high treason and stripped of his title something that did not stop him from continuing to rile up Danish representatives around the world to act against their government, which, he reminded them, was at the time occupied by a hostile power. This act, though technically against international law, gave the United States a toehold in Greenland, which they were later able to formalize to a degree by establishing the Thule Air Force Base, T-H-U-L-E, Thule a word that refers to a historical name given to the area where the base was established, and that name originally derived from the ancient Greek concept of Ultima Thule, a theoretical land that existed north of England that eventually became a stand-in term for any place that existed along the border of the known world. This same name was also applied to the Proto-Inuit people who lived in the area when the Vikings first arrived, the folks who had been there for many thousands of years before the Europeans or the Inuit showed up, they were called the Thule people. After World War II, when Denmark had gotten their country back and thus were able to publicly appreciate some of what Kaufman had done for them while they were occupied, the Danish government officially ratified the treaty that Kaufman had made, which said the U.S. could have a base in Greenland to protect the area as long as there was a threat to North America, which, depending on one's interpretation of things, could mean pretty much forever. Thus, the U.S. began to set up a more permanent base in Thule, converting the military air force base into a weather station and observatory, which allowed them to collect data on the Arctic and serve as a resupply base for research, search and rescue, and mapping efforts in the region. This base was co-run 
by the Danish government after the war. Denmark joined NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in 1949, and when the Korean War broke out in 1950, base building around the world hit Greenland as well, with a whole network of bases set up over the next few years, with the existing Tool base serving as the main node, the biggest and best equipped of the group. Tool was also the northernmost port in the area, allowing it to be reliably resupplied by ship, and it was straight across the North Pole from the USSR which meant that it was of immense strategic importance. The Soviets would likely need to fly bombers over or near Tool to get to Canada and the United States, which meant having both sensitive sensory equipment and aerial countermeasures at that very location was considered to be a fairly vital investment as the Cold War was heating up. Also, in the 1950s, a new NATO-focused agreement was made between the United States and Denmark to establish Greenland as part of the larger NATO defense network, essentially setting the tone for future expansion throughout and utilization of the area, as it might be necessary to protect against outside threats, which at the time mostly meant the USSR and their authoritarian communist allies. Modern Strategic Air Command Infrastructure was put into place in the 1950s after a massive effort by the United States Navy and Air Force to build the necessary buildings, runways, and things of that nature, and then to fill them with people. The base allowed the United States and their NATO allies to conduct sophisticated and thorough surveillance on the Soviets, flying across the Arctic in planes built to survive the cold conditions, refueled mid-flight, and then cruising around Soviet territory before returning to Toole or to England, Alaska, or Labrador and Canada, all of which were about equidistant from the surveillance area, and which therefore would give the pilot options in case weather or some other externality had closed the Toole base in the meantime. Later that decade, in 1959, the Toole Air Base served as the staging area for the construction of Camp Century, another base that was about 150 miles or 240 kilometers from Toole, and which was, to the outside world, a scientific research base, carved into the ice and powered by a nuclear reactor, but which in reality was a front for a top-secret U.S. Army program called Project Iceworm which was meant to test the feasibility of building a bunch of nuclear missile silos within the sprawling Greenland ice sheet. Placement in Greenland was paramount because it meant medium-range missiles could be used because they would be placed inside the ice, hard to find and take out, very close to the Soviet Union, right across the Arctic, just over the top of the planet. This effort was so secret, in fact, that it was even kept from the Danish government. It only came to light after a Danish government investigation was ordered in 1995 to look into the historical use and storage of nuclear weapons in Greenland, after other new information came to light about the crash of a B-52 bomber at the Toole Air Force Base in 1968, namely that a U.S. bomber carrying thermonuclear weapons crashed onto sea ice in Greenland, which caused the conventional explosives on board to go off, which in turn caused the nuclear payloads on the thermonuclear devices to break up and disperse, contaminating the area with radioactive material. The Danish government learned about that crash because in 1995 they discovered that the previous Danish government had actually given the U.S. government permission to keep nuclear weapons in Greenland as part of their Operation Chrome Dome efforts a project that kept B-52 Stratofortress bomber aircraft continuously in the air, flying routes along the Soviet Union's border. And this was just one component of similar efforts in other places around the world. 
These operations were fundamental to the U.S.'s developing nuclear triad deterrence strategy, meant to ensure that, no matter how many land-based operations the Soviets could take out, there would always be planes in the air, all day every day, nearly impossible to hit with nukes that could strike back in the event of aggression from the USSR. The 90s-era Danish government did not realize that this had been signed off on, and they wanted to check to see if any other similar instances had taken place back in the day. Because they were meant to be a nuke-free country, and it was kind of embarrassing for them to realize that this had happened in their territory. In any case, Camp Century and Operation Iceworm only lasted for about eight years, from 1959 until 1967, ending when the builders realized that the glaciers shifted a whole lot more enthusiastically than was desirable if one wanted to build tunnels leading to silos that could be used to deploy upwards of 600 nuclear missiles. Remarkably, the waste from the nuclear reactor that powered the base, which was the world's first portable nuclear reactor, by the way, was just left there when the effort was shut down, the assumption being that the ice would just cover everything up and entomb it forever. Now, though, it's estimated that the ice sheet covering the base will melt sometime between now and the year 2100, which will expose the leftover biological, chemical, and radioactive waste across the area, which is very not ideal for a whole lot of reasons. To this day, though, the U.S. still maintains the tool base, and another base called Sondestrom, the latter of which was purpose-built to support the efforts of the main tool base. And Tool continues to be an important early warning and telemetry site, but today serves more missile-focused purposes rather than aircraft due to the shift in military technologies over the decades. Taking a step back to the immediate post-World War II days, though, then-U.S. President Harry Truman had his people offer the Danish government, first, some oil-laden land in Alaska in exchange for strategically relevant portions of Greenland. And then, when that was turned down, $100 million in gold in exchange for Greenland as a whole. Both offers were turned down, but his administration did not mind over much because they were able to get their bases in place either way, and far more cheaply than would have been the case if they had suddenly gained a vast, new, ridiculously cold and icy, sparsely populated land to govern and maintain and protect. So this is not the first time the United States government has investigated the possibility of buying Greenland, and the U.S. has not exactly been a stranger in the region leading up to this point. The country is predominantly Greenlandic Inuit, with a bit of Danish folk mixed in there. About 12% of the country is non-Inuit, based on 2013 census data. But Americans, military personnel from the United States, have at times made up a significant chunk of the population of this cold and mostly undeveloped land due to their presence on local military bases. So if the United States has their base, has their local component of their pointillist military empire pinned to the right spot in this otherwise strategically less important island, what's the deal? What's the point of trying to buy the place again? And why now? Well, it's important to recognize that buying land from other countries to add it on to your country is not a new thing. It's less common today than it was back before the 20th century, when global trade and broadly accepted liberalism allowed nations to benefit more from trading with other nations than they would benefit from conquering or buying them. But it's not an unheard of event historically around the world. And the United States in particular, arriving how it did when it did in historical context, is cobbled together from some claims captured through warfare, 
but also a whole lot of land that was bought from other countries when those countries needed money more than they needed far-off colonies to maybe someday utilize for some purpose. In 1803, for instance, the United States bought much of the central portion of the modern United States from France as part of the Louisiana Purchase. For $15,1803, the United States got part or all of what is now Arkansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Louisiana, and the upper portion of Texas. Not long after, in 1819, the U.S. traded a little snippet of Texas that was bought from France to Spain in exchange for what is now the state of Florida. A southern chunk of Arizona and New Mexico were purchased from the Mexican government in 1853 for about $10 million in 1853 dollars, which is the equivalent of about $230 million 2018 dollars, which honestly is not nothing, but it's suspected that part of why Mexico was willing to sell the land in the first place is that, less than a decade previously, the United States had defeated them in a war taking what is today part or all of modern New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and California from them. So they may have done the math and determined that it was better to get paid something rather than to get attacked for land that the U.S. intended to get from them one way or another. And then Alaska was purchased from Russia in 1867, when Russia realized that very few of their people were interested in settling there, and they worried that the British and other potential future enemies would be able to take it from them very easily during a conflict, so they started to look for potential buyers. After the American Civil War, the United States government was at odds with itself, but they ratified the treaty that allowed the purchase of Alaska to be made by a wide margin, despite that post-war discombobulation. Even with the relatively low price of $7.2 million, though, many people at the time criticized the purchase, assuming that the United States government had gotten duped into buying worthless land, icy, barely inhabited, undeveloped land from the Russians. But the purchase is generally seen in a very different light today, as quite the deal. So a huge chunk of modern United States territory was bought and paid for, just like Trump is offering to do with Greenland today. Now, is it a strange thought, the idea of selling a country to another country in the modern world? Yes, it's very strange. But is it unheard of? Absolutely not. It's just a lot less common in the contemporary international order than it was a few hundred years ago. Now, that said, it's possible that part of the goal here is to capture some of that nostalgic, growing country feeling at a time in which precisely that kind of nostalgia for times long past, for historical moments when things were supposedly far better and getting better all the time, for a country like the United States that has perhaps reached a kind of apex and might even be heading downward from that apex, is it any surprise that some people might long for the days when we were expanding, when we were the hip young upstarts growing and growing, building a new modern sort of empire? It's possible that this move rather than being a mere distraction, which is always possible for any politician, but especially for this particular president, I think, it's still possible that this was an offer meant to stimulate those feelings of pioneering growth and possibility, to rile up the base, create a new opponent, in this case, the Danish government, that will not give the president what he wants, and to make the people think about how interesting that would be, what possibilities might exist if the United States decided to expand again 
to bring in new holdings, new states even. Most prominent among the possible rationales for instigating this pseudo-scandal, though, and the one that seems to be least focused upon, but in my mind, is maybe the most likely, is that Greenland is now being seen through new eyes because of what's happening with the climate. Namely, that the climate is changing. Average global temperatures are shifting, and thus, a place that is predominantly so icy as to be barely habitable is becoming far less useless-seeming than before. The most superficial change under this new climate situation that we're living through is that regions formerly iced over will no longer be iced over, at least not year-round, which is already the case today, but will be increasingly the case in the very near future. That means regions filled with natural resources, formerly covered up and inaccessible, will now be mineable, harvestable, monetizable. That's a compelling possibility for a government that doesn't seem likely to care over much about instigating further climate change, forcibly moving native populations from their homes, and using up finite resources for short-term enrichment. Beyond that use case, we are also seeing an incredibly rapid buildup along the top of the planet in the Arctic Ocean, the body of water that separates North America from Russia and Northern Europe. The United States is one of the Arctic nations because of Alaska, alongside Finland, Iceland, Canada, Norway, Russia, and Sweden. That is, the nations that touch, that have ports, that have coastlines on the Arctic Ocean. Denmark is also part of this group because of their ownership of Greenland, which is right up there in the thick of things, most of its landmass in the Arctic polar region. This is a big deal because the Arctic region is becoming a hotbed of international intrigue and politics. The whole region, like Greenland, is filled with largely untapped resources because it's traditionally been so cold as to be difficult to develop, not to mention live in. But that's changing as the climate changes, as temperatures rise, and as ice sheets begin to melt. What's more, the Arctic Ocean, traditionally filled with ice most of the year, is increasingly traversable, allowing ships, icebreakers primarily, but also, at times, just plain old ships, to travel between Arctic ports, to prospect for underwater Arctic resources. Various nations have begun to claim the resources located on different continental shelves located underwater in the Arctic. In 2007, Russia even sent submersibles to the seabed beneath the North Pole to plant a Russian flag made of titanium alloy there, raising hackles and awareness of Russia's growing ambitions in the area and causing many governments to start making their own claims about what they perceive to be their own underwater property, to get there before someone else does. Much of this race to claim seabeds and build ships in the area has more to do with trade and less to do with warfare, which I suppose is a welcome change from the at times traditional state of affairs when it comes to expansion and competition of this kind. At the same time, though, one type of conflict often leads to another, and the frantic building of trade vessels and ports, and the overall desire to own trade in a region that could be one of the least negatively affected parts of the world as the planet heats up over the next century, that could lead to a lot of friction, and at times perhaps even full-blown physical confrontation. Now it's weird to think about the possibility of Canada and Russia getting into pitched naval battles with each other, but the fact is these two countries are optimally placed to own international trade from, let's say, 2050 or 2060 onward, as they own tons of coastline along this just-now-opening-up collection of potential trade routes, 
They can do the trade, but they can also supply the traders, rent out the ports, sell the fuel, and take a piece of all of the custom that passes through what most analysts are predicting to be a very, very active collection of short-distance trade routes. In many cases, much shorter than what is available today between some of the world's biggest and most powerful economies. There's a lot to gain and a lot to miss out on. And although the U.S. technically gets to partake in this rush, just like the others it's partaken in previously, Alaska is not as vital to this emerging trade region as the vast Canadian and Russian coastlines. And it could make sense through some lenses to attempt to buy a better hand for that upcoming game to snag a territory like Greenland to ensure that the U.S. is a serious contender, not just a nearby observer, missing out on this potential near-future economic and cultural jackpot. This is a whole lot of extrapolation about what may have just been a blunder, a political flub, maybe just thoughtlessness or actual rudeness. But there have already been secondary consequences to this line of questioning from new serious analysis about Greenland as a potential future wealth generator, alongside the political fallout in Denmark, as the governing class there has found itself at the pointy end of President Trump's inflammatory rhetoric. International relationships are at stake because of a non-serious-seeming inquiry that wasn't taken seriously enough by the world for his liking. We will see if anything else comes of this. I kind of doubt it, but stranger things have happened, even just this year, than seeing what started out as a Twitter-based one-sided scuffle involving government officials turn into actual, large-scale, real-world events that could even change the way our maps are drawn. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Perfectionists by Simon Winchester. This is a book that is about precision and what precision, getting things very, very precise, down to a crazy number of decimal points of precision, how that changes the way that we do things, changes what we can do, and how many things that we take for granted today, from things like watches to things like smartphones to car engines and fundamental physics, all of these things require a degree of exactitude that were we not capable of making things that precise, we would not be capable of building these things. It would be very difficult to build a fully functioning smartphone, for instance, if the components were fairly ramshackle and we were not capable of doing things on a very, very small, very, very precise scale. This is a concept that I personally didn't think about a whole lot before I read this book, but it's something that has a very deep history, and it's something that connects to a vast array of different industries, of different areas of inquiry, and there's just an interesting collection of stories and characters behind it. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Perfectionists by Simon Winchester. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name on most of those networks. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.